Lord Jesus, it is in you truly that we, love, that we live each and every day. And God, as we, we come before you this morning, we pray uh, that you would renew us uh, in your word. God, that we would uh, hear your voice uh, spoken to us through the scriptures this morning. Uh, we thank you, God, that uh, you are, are powerful not only to save, but to sustain us, to sanctify us, and one day, Lord, also to glorify us. But Father, I, I pray that, uh, that we would not view our faith as something that is there at a time because we pray to prayer and that it's just sort of inactively in our lives. But I pray, dear God, that we would see it as, as it is. The salvation that you have given to us is, is our life, God. And so I pray uh, that we would seek your face this morning through your word. And that you would be faithful to, to speak to us uh, the words that we need to hear. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning as we come to, to, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, uh, he sort of picks up from what he was talking about in chapter 8 about God's providence over our lives. You know, last week Solomon reminded us that a lack of control is a part of our existence, but it is not part of God's being. He sovereignly oversees and he controls everything. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like that every desire that you have would become a reality? That's God. Now, praise God that doesn't happen for us because our hearts are not pure, unlike God whose will is good and perfect in every way. And if we take to heart the sense of God's providence, His sovereignty over our lives, it can bring us great comfort as we believe in God. But too often, in the midst of the uncertainties of life, we oftentimes struggle to trust God, do we not? And we all seem to handle the difficulties of life in, in very different ways. Okay, Some of us try to exercise control, do we not? I mean, you sort of push back against the uncertainties of life and try to control it. And so you try to control everything in life that you can. And in that sense, you're sort of seeking, maybe unconsciously, to create the illusion that life is not uncertain. Because you can fix this situation or that situation or you can control this person toward your desire and your end. And you see that. And there's a sense in which, well, I, maybe I can't control everything, but at least I have some things under control. Others actually have a very different perspective on life. They try to, to deal with uncertainty by being more free-spirited. You probably know people like this, okay? They deal with uncertainty by viewing it not as something to be feared or something to be controlled, but maybe like an adventure, Okay, you, 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 know, you know people like that, that they view life as a grand adventure with the attitude of, I wonder what's going to happen next. And so there are people that sort of go with the flow. But then maybe you're a person who uh, is neither one of those. You don't seek control, nor are you free-spirited. But, but maybe you are a person that easily becomes overwhelmed with life when the difficulties and the frustrations and the uncertainties of life 
raises its head. Maybe you have a tendency towards more of an obsessive personality. And so as you begin to deal with the uncertainties of life, it's very easy for you to be overwhelmed by them and maybe even paralyzed. And you see that as, as difficulties come your way, you see yourself just beginning to shut down. And, and just begin to, to sort of come into your own shell. Well, the reality is, is that we all probably, to varying degrees, probably uh, do all of these things at one time or another. We try to seek control sometimes. Other times, maybe we're more laid back about life. But maybe other times, we find ourselves maybe even struggling with depression, with discouragement. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we find ourselves... Uh, Rustling with these things. Uh, the reality is, is that we don't have to go seek uncertainty in life, do we? It actually finds us. You know, it might be a, a bad diagnosis that we get from the doctor. Or it might be uh, a financial downturn uh, in our family that causes great pressure and difficulty. Or it might be some other uh, struggle that we may have that we didn't expect that makes us feel very weak. And very vulnerable. And while we know in our heads that God is sovereignly in control, still do we not find ourselves sort of reacting to these uncertainties in life rather than resting in Him who is never out of control? And so understanding that life is filled with frustrations and difficulties, you know, it's important for us to ask this morning, how are we as God's people supposed to live in the light of such circumstances. How are we to live in light of such circumstances? And, and I appreciate Solomon's uh, honesty to look at life as it is. And he talks, first of all, in this passage about the difficulties of life, about the frustrations of life uh, in verses 1 through 6 and also in verses 11 through 18. So sort of like the bookends of the passage, he talks about what life is like. And the difficulties. And then uh, he'll talk about how we are to live in the light of such um, circumstances. So, first of all, he deals with two primary difficulties in life. First of all, he talks about death in verses 1 through 6. Death. He says, all people come to the same end. Death does not discriminate, right? Uh, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Now, if we read this passage and if we're really honest, it, it almost seems unfair, doesn't it? I mean, should, shouldn't the righteous be blessed and protected and cared for while those who are wicked and unclean should be punished? You know, they should be dealt with is sort of what we might think in our minds, but yet Solomon is telling us that actually, you know, the righteous sometimes end up uh, incurring the circumstances that you would expect a wicked person to do, and vice versa. And so as we, as we look at life, 
we see a, a lot of unrighteous people flourishing, that they live long lives. They, they, they die at a ripe old age and it just seems like they have everything and there's no cares in the world. And yet you see those that are righteous that may die through a tragic death even when they're young. And, and like I said, it could seem like, well, this doesn't seem to be fair. So, so you can understand why some people may think that God is not real, that, that he does not exist. Because they look at these circumstances in life and they think, well, this can't be. I mean, God could not be uh, alive. He cannot be real because if he were, then why would such things like this happen? Or, or maybe they may think that God is there, but he doesn't care. I, Al Mohler was talking about that in the video that we had for, for Sunday school this morning of how people are questioning God's morality, that they see him as, as someone who is, is not good. And so how can you trust God who could allow such things? And so Solomon lays this out before us. But others might think that since everyone dies in the end, you know, what, what benefit is there to being righteous? You, you know, you might as well get as much out of life as you can because we're all going to die, right? So, so what does it matter? And in all of these tendencies, uh, there is a pressure of life that can sort of lead us towards these things if all we do is just sort of examine life and sort of analyze it from our own perspective. But notice what Solomon says at the end of verse 3. He said, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Now, you, you may see someone that you consider to be a good, righteous person who's facing extreme difficulties or, or someone that you would consider bad or terrible person. And everything seems to be going their way. But, but Solomon wants to make sure that we see that there is a a, a deeper reality here, a truer reality that, that we may not pick up on just as we observe life. And, and he says this, that none of us are worthy of God's blessing or goodness. That we are all ultimately deserving of, of death. So if, if we really examine our hearts, we find that they are full of, of evil. And, and I like the word that he uses here, that word madness. Doesn't that paint a picture? I mean, when you, when you think about it. I mean, for those of us that are older, maybe for you kids, not so much so. Maybe even for teenagers, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But for us, those of us that are older, we might think back on our lives to some of the things that we did that was extremely foolish when we were young. And now that we're older, we think back about these things and we are appalled that we would even do such things, right? And it is sort of one of those things where it's like, well, I hope nobody in the church finds out that I did X, Y, or Z, right? And uh, we're sort of embarrassed by those things. It, it might even seem ridiculous to us now. It's, it's, it's madness. And that's what he says. That that's really the condition of, of all of us. Now, now think back to, to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said that the day that they sinned, they would what? They would surely die. Right, exactly. They would surely die. But God was exceedingly gracious in delaying the punishment of death. Spiritually, there was that death between Adam and Eve and God immediately. There was that separation. Adam and Eve hid from themselves. But as far as the physical death that came, 
That was something that came much later. And in a sense, God has done so with us as well. But, but he is, has no obligation to do so, to delay our death. Our sin deserves death. So we are deserving of the end that we meet whenever it is that we meet. And so even when those who we, we would consider as righteous seem to die young, God is just in bringing about the end of, of all mankind as he so pleases to do. And, and as you see these things, it is a reminder for us to be humble before God. Just because when we say that a person is good or bad, we are in one sense sort of putting ourselves in, in the place of God, saying that I could judge the human heart and see where that person truly is. But Solomon reminds us that we have to have a posture of humility before God. Only he can see who the righteous and, and the wicked are. And actually the Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's only have been one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he talks about this, this difficulty of death that we have and that we wrestle with and and especially as we see that played out in life and in ways that doesn't always make sense to us. But then in verses 11 through 18, he talks about sort of uncertainties of life. The, the, the second difficulty is, is that all people, regardless of their, their privilege in life or their limitations, are subject to time and chance. Now that's a word that, that Solomon actually uses. Look, look at verses 11 and 12. He said, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor to the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those without knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when suddenly falls upon them. Now, notice that he's speaking of people who are blessed with certain privileges. Okay, look at the text. He talks about those who are swift, those who are strong, those who are wise, those who are intelligent, those who uh, are with knowledge. And he said, and yet... There is no guarantee of certain outcomes. This doesn't mean that their life is going to be easier. It's going to be better. He says not even of their death in, in verse 12. So as, as we look at this, we, we, we see that it's, Solomon uses the phrase time and chance. And, and you might sort of you know, bristle against that. You're, the reformed hairs on the back of your neck may be raised as, as you hear this term and you think, now wait a minute, we don't believe in chance, we believe in God's sovereignty and, and, and that is true. So, so what does Solomon mean by this? I mean, Solomon affirms that obviously that God is sovereign, but, but he's asking us, he says, can you explain why God does everything that he does? As a matter of fact, that's sort of the question he leaves us with at the end of chapter 8, does he not? He said, you see all these things that God does, and yet you don't understand those things. Uh, and of course, we can't. And we all recognize it, that, that we are not in control, but we are subject to time and chance. I mean, as people look around at life and the things that happen... It, it feels that way, that everything just sort of happens by chance. It just sort of happens in its time. And, and the preacher is trying to remind us that not only uh, that, uh, that no one is truly in control of their own life, 
You know, I, I don't care how talented you are or how religious you are or, or how privileged you are. Uh, none of us are in control of our own lives. Even the wise man who delivers a city, as you see in verses 13 through 18, you know, he delivers this city from this powerful king. And, and, and yet, you know, we see that he's not remembered. Now, Solomon is very careful to say wisdom is good. It's even, uh, uh, it's of great benefit. I mean, it's even better than, than strong might and stuff like that. But he says, but even such wisdom does not guarantee great gain to us. But then in verse 12, he returns to this theme of death to show us that none of us know when it will come. Now, in one sense, you may argue and say, wait, Pastor Rick, he goes, if I'm terminally ill, I know that death is coming. Or maybe if I'm in my 90s, you know, or maybe I'm pushing 100, I know death is coming. And, and that's true. But, but Solomon wants us to see death for what it is. That it's, it's like a cruel enemy that comes upon us. It's something that could raise its head at any time. And, and we talk about that in our culture. We talk about the grim reaper that you never know when, when death is going to come. Uh, even to those who are young. I, I remember when I was in high school, there was this kid named David that I actually grew up with. We went to elementary school together. I knew for years he sat beside me in homeroom in high school. And we went on Christmas break. And after Christmas break, we came back and David wasn't there. And and I thought, OK, I wonder what's he's you know, he wasn't the best student. Maybe he was just skipping school or something. Maybe their family took an extended break. I don't know. Anyway, then our the the principal came in to tell us that over the Christmas break, uh, well, actually is, is over New Year's. David had had a party at his house with drinking and, and a bunch of friends. And his dad came home and just blew up, just raised the roof and just was really upset with him that, that he did that. And so uh, David went into his room and he took his own life. Death is a cruel enemy that comes upon us even when we don't expect it. And Jesus shows us that death is not something that's just sort of out of place and needs fixed. I mean, maybe you're one of those people that you walk into a room and you see a picture. It's a little crooked on the wall and you just have to go straighten that picture. You know, it's just it's OK, but it just needs to be tweaked a little bit. That's not what death is like. Jesus shows us that, that death is something that needs to be conquered. Death is an enemy. So that's why when we get together as as Christians at a funeral. We cry. And that's okay that we cry. I mean, you can look at that and you say, well, don't you people have hope of heaven? Yes, we have hope of heaven. We definitely do for those that die in Jesus Christ. But still, death is not natural. It is unnatural. It is an enemy uh, that is, uh, ought not to be there. But praise God, our Savior has, has conquered that enemy. So how do we live in the midst of these difficulties in life? How do we live in the midst of death and uncertainty and difficulties? Well, how we live in our lives in the midst of these difficulties is what differentiates the righteous from the unrighteous, for the righteous from the wicked. So what characterizes us? Well, he actually says in our second point that life is to be enjoyed. 
Life is to be enjoyed in verses 7 through 10. Now, this may sound a little surprising, a little bit different perspective than what you might expect the preacher to take. I mean, from the opening words of Ecclesiastes, he's been telling us about what? He's been talking mostly about the troubles of life. He says our existence under the sun is what? Vanity. It is a striving after the wind. And you get this whole sense of hopelessness. And, and yet, this is not Solomon's only theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, there's what is known as the enjoyment passages in Ecclesiastes. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, he talks about eating and drinking. In the middle of chapter 3, in verses 12 and 13, he spoke about joyfully doing good as long as we live. In chapter 5, he, uh, in verse 18, he explains about how good and fitting it is for us to find enjoyment in our work because this is our lot in life. And then in chapter 8, verse 15, he, he went farther and commended joy as a lifestyle. So Solomon talks about these, these good things as well. And so while he might be frustrated in, with the fallen world in which we live, he still acknowledges the gifts that come from the hand of God and that God gives his people pleasures. You know, it's, it's really sad when, when people characterize us sometimes as the frozen chosen. Especially if when they say that, you might say, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. That ought to not be what characterizes God's people. He gives us all kinds of things that, that we take delight in, that we take pleasure in. Uh, he talks about at least four things that I want to mention this morning, just very briefly. First of all, there's a sense of contentment that God gives us. He, he, he begins in verses, uh, verse 7 by saying, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now, the word go here is a real, um, um, it's an intense word. It's a word that, that uh, has a sense of urgency about it. Go! Go do this! Wake up! Don't sit still anymore! Go! That's the sense in which he, he, he is talking to us. It's a, it's a command. We are hereby commanded to go and to eat our bread and drink our wine with joyful hearts. Now, it's not so much that the eating and drinking is the focus here, but it's really that heartfelt joy that we are to have as believers as we sit down with God's people and fellowship with one another, as we break bread and, and, and uh, enjoy the things that God has, has provided for us, we are charged to receive each pleasure with God-centered joy in our hearts, which leads us to that sense of contentment. But not just contentment, but he talks secondly about celebration, about a sense of a celebrating. Look at verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now that means absolutely nothing to us. You know, we have some rule about never wearing white. Is it before or after Easter? I don't know. Anyway, there's all these different sayings that we have and things. But that has nothing to do about what he's talking about here. A white garment was what you could call maybe dress-up clothes in the ancient Near East. It was, uh, if you use the uh, modern 
illustration, it'd be like saying, put on your fanciest dress or wear a tuxedo. You know, we're going to go to a party. It's a, it's a sense of a, a celebration. And, and, and the oil, as we talked about earlier in Ecclesiastes, that sense of oil is really a sense of perfume. It's a sense of smelling good. And so he's saying, look, have that sense of celebration uh, about you. And so, you know, as we might use the phrase, you know, we're going to go dance the night away. It's just like we're going to have a good time. We're going to celebrate. We're going to enjoy the things that, that God has given us. And yet sometimes, even as Christians, we just seem to endure life. We, we simply try to exist. And sometimes, maybe even our attitude, and, and oftentimes this is just something we sort of fall into, that we're just trying to get by in life. It just seems like we have so many things that are coming at us. There's, our to-do list just gets longer and longer and longer and longer. We feel the weight of that, and, and we're just trying to drudge through it. But life is not to just be endured, but it is to be enjoyed. It is to be celebrated. And if you look at Christ, I mean, there's probably no one in one sense on this earth that lived a more difficult life than Christ, who is the God-man. And yet there were, you could see snapshots of, of his enjoyment of the world in which he created and you see his celebration at the, the wedding at Canaan. You, you see the times where he sat around with his disciples and, and, and he talked as well. Jesus enjoyed the creation that he made. But Solomon also talks about, in verse 9, about companionship. So not only contentment and celebration, but also companionship. He said, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That he has given you under the sun. Now, um, when he talks about vain life, he's not talking about a meaningless life. Actually, the word that is used there could be translated a breath. And so it's like he's saying, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your short life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, we could apply this principle of this verse to other relationships, of course. The, the love between a man and his wife is not the only pleasure we can experience in human friendships. Uh, so we could talk about much more than that. We are to enjoy the relationships that God has given us. But here the Bible gives specific command to husbands who need to pay attention to exactly what the preacher says. And, and he seems to uh, be giving us a practical exhortation as well to those who are married every husband is called to enjoy his wife do you hear that guys all of you men who are married god is calling you to enjoy your wife now that that means spending time together and all the busy demands of life to to set aside time to do things together that you both may enjoy it means prizing your wife as a lover, of uh, speaking terms of affection to her. It, it is a sense of getting away, of saying to her, you know what, I'm going to lay aside everything else I have to do. I know I have work, I have my to-do list, I have all these voices that are clamoring for my attention. But you know what, I'm going to lay all that aside and I'm going to spend time with you. You are the most important thing to me apart from Christ. And so we're just going to get away, just the two of us, and just sort of fuel the fire of romantic love. 
Enjoying one's wife also means valuing her as a person. It means listening to her, men, without pointing out what she did wrong or without trying to solve problems that she didn't even ask you to solve, at least not until you've taken the time to listen to her and to understand what it is that she's saying. Now, these are just a, a few ways that husbands are called to enjoy their wives. Now, it's, it's very possible in a room this size that there might be some husbands, maybe there's some wives that would say this, that would be tempted to complain that their spouses are not always easy to enjoy, that the romance of marriage is long gone, and sometimes even the friendship of that relationship seems to be over. And if that's the case, then we need to notice exactly how the preacher words his commands. He says, the wife whom we are told to enjoy is also the wife that we are told to what? Love. To love. Maybe your, maybe your wife is, is hard to enjoy right now, but at least you can obey the command that God has given you to love your wife. For husbands, this means loving our wives the same way that Christ loved the church. We talked about that when we were studying Ephesians 5. And as we love our wives, as we give ourselves sacrificially, as we, as we lay down our own desires to, to meet her desires, as, as we show the love as described in 1 Corinthians 13, then you begin to see a change that happens, but it doesn't happen in your wife. It happens in you. That you begin to enjoy her. Um, for those of you that have seen the movie Fireproof, it's, that's exactly the theme of that movie. It is that if you want to enjoy your wife, you need to love her. You can get a copy of that. It's a good movie. But anyway, do you enjoy the relationships that the Lord has given to you? Uh, or, or maybe you're a person who you have isolated yourselves. Maybe not intentionally, but work's been busy. There's been a lot of things to do. I've got things to do around the house. I've got all these things that are happening. And is it that maybe we have uh, isolated ourselves from the relationships? And so we've not enjoyed those things that God has given to us. And then he says, fourthly, he talks about our enjoyment of commitment. Or uh, you could also say work as well. He says in verse 10, whatever, you ha whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are doing. Solomon is saying that we are to do whatever God has given us to do. Uh, not the things that God has placed out of our reach. And, and I just say that because I think sometimes uh, we as people can focus so much on the things that we want to do or that maybe we have a desire to do that we miss the things that God has given us to do right before us. Charles Spurgeon describes a young man who dreamed of standing under a banyan tree and preaching eloquent sermons in India. To which Spurgeon said to the young man, he said, My dear fellow, why don't you try the streets of London first and see whether you're eloquent there? You know, he, here he was. He, he was thinking about some great a dream that he had, not taking advantage of what the Lord had placed right in front of us. And each one of us should do whatever work God has given us to do, um, not the work that he's given someone else to do. And we're told here that we are to do it with all of our might. We are to do so, as the New Testament tells us, to bring glory to God. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I want you to see that, that God, in, in, in His wisdom, even though we live in a life 
of great difficulty, even though we live in a life of uncertainty and even our death sometimes uh, seems very meaningless, that God has called us to enjoy Him and enjoy the world in which He has given us. And there are a million ways to apply this passage, but at the center is a delight in the midst of the difficulties and the frustrations of life. That the world that God has given to us, I mean, we oftentimes focus on the world as being a fallen place, and it is. It is. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about in Romans 8 how the creation groans and longs for that day when Christ will, will come back. But at the same time, I think it's interesting that God has, his world is still beautiful, that his world is bountiful, that we were designed to enjoy its pleasures. And even in the midst of the world being fallen, we can still enjoy the things that God has given to us. And so we are to make the most of every day. We are to worship the Lord by enjoying the things that he has given us. Having that sense of contentment, celebrating, um, understanding the companionship and appreciating the relationships that we have and the work that he's given us. I mean, this week I, I have tasted some of the little joys of life. You know, a piece of my wife's ooey-gooey butter bars, which are excellent. Uh, waking up even to the patter of rain and just being reminded of God's goodness that he sends the rain when we need it. Uh, having an evening with friends. Uh, having this week a, a time of extended prayer with a dear brother in Christ and just enjoying talking about the things of the Lord. Um, watching my son this week uh, participate in one of the passions of his life and that is dancing and seeing the things that he's done. And even spending time with my wife, just the, the two of us, just having time talking and just enjoying one another. To have these joys is to know our Father's grace. It's true that there are spiritual dangers in the pursuit of pleasure. And Solomon's already talked about that. But it, and, and if we become distracted by those pleasures, then we can lose our passion for God. But it is a different matter when we look past the pleasures to the one who gives them, then we are able to enjoy them in a way that brings contentment. Because what delights us is not the pleasure itself, but the one who provides those pleasures so lavishly. Right? Solomon affirms that, that trusting God and enjoying his good gifts are, are the means by which we are to live as, as worshipers of God and in the midst of the frustrations and the disappointments of life. For Christians, we recognize that, that Jesus embodied this kind of worshipful life, but also that he came that we might have the experience of a more complete joy than Solomon could ever anticipate before the time of the cross. And so we as God's people... Are, are, are called to be a joyful people and to rejoice in God and what he's done. Are you experiencing this joy that comes only in Jesus Christ? I would encourage you this week, if you want to do an interesting study, just, just see what the Bible has to say about joy and salvation and to see about the blessings that God has given to us. Look, at, if you would, just in closing, at Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. 
and verse 18. This prophet of God writes, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the posture that, that God has saved us to live in. But I want you to notice that word yet really points us back to what comes before this. So take your eyes and look back up to verse 17. Let me read the whole thing. He said, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no uh, herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's what God said. He goes, life is difficult. Life is hard. But we, in the midst of that, are, have been saved that we might enjoy God and the things that, that He has given to us uh, as, as we take delight in Him. Please bow with me, if you would, for a time of silence as we think about these things and prayerfully consider them this morning. Our gracious God, we, we do thank you for the many blessings that you have given to us. But Lord, we, we do know what it means to live lives uh, in the midst of, of difficulties. And for, for some of us, it seems like God, even as a church, as a whole, we are encountering a lot of difficult things right now. God, there's families that are going through uh, very challenging things. Lord, there... and and. And there are those, God, I'm sure, that are going through things that have kept their lips sealed and no one really knows the things that they are encountering. But, but there is no question, God, that we understand as a church the difficulties and the frustrations of life. But yet, God, we thank you that in the midst of these things um, that you have given us joy. And I pray that you would help us this week to walk in the joy of the Lord, that we could enjoy the salvation and, and the creation and the things that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that it would show on our faces um, that we would not pretend, God, that things are not hard, but we would know that the hard things in life are not all that there is in life. That, God, behind these things are you. And, and, and you are good. And we could rejoice in you. So please... Help us this week as we continue to face these circumstances in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we just slow down, as we rest before you, as we think about even the, the little things in life that we might be very tempted to just quickly pass right by and forget and not see your goodness, that Lord, not only would you give us peace, not only would you remind us of your goodness, but God, that others would see this as well. Father, that there would even be those that would ask us, how can you be so, you know, this way in the midst of the things that you're encountering? And may those conversations be opportunities for us to talk about Jesus and to share the hope that we have. And we pray, Lord, that these conversations would, would grow and would bear fruit to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, please, would you help us as a church to see new converts, to see baby Christians that we could help raise and to nurture and to encourage. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing in our midst. But we pray ultimately that these things would bring glory to you. We thank you and pray them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.